Welcome to Flaps Podcast. Welcome to Flaps Podcast for 2013. In this edition... Hang on a minute, hang on a minute. You forgot to say August 2013. Well, to be honest, with our track record, I was probably right first time. Mm. Did you have a nice Christmas, by the way? <laughs> yes, thanks. Look, I know we've been AWOL for a bit, but we are back with a vengeance. Thanks for all the emails, the tweets, threads on the flyer forums about us, but we are back, back, back. Return of the Flaps. Return of the Flaps. Right, enough of that. That It really is enough of that. Anyway, we never really went away. There's bound to have been some repeats on, oh, I don't know, Dave, perhaps? Or it's flying friendly equivalents, Daveation. That's brilliant. Copyright that, write that down, remember that. Anyway, in this edition... We've sent Andrew Easton to Heathrow to get up close and personal with BA's new aircraft, the A380 and the Dreamliner. It is like being given the best boys toy in the world, really. We've also sent Mike Roberts down to Goodwood to visit Aerobatic Aces Ultimate High. Yeehaw, Jester's dead. Smoke comes out of the bad guy and it's home in time for team medals. The CAA tell us about their future airspace strategy. The airspace has evolved over time and actually what we'd like to do is to take a much more strategic approach as to how we run the UK airspace. And Pablo Mason shares some of his wisdom, as usual, in about a minute. Hang on a minute. Andrew Easton, Mike Roberts, the CAA and Pablo Mason. Have we actually done anything for this podcast? Yes, I've been to Gloucester. Right. Have I actually done anything for this podcast? No, so make yourself useful. Go and put the kettle on. All right, then. Welcome to Flaps. We're back. Flaps podcast. So good, it makes your bum fitch. Now, whilst me and Mark are your captains, every good flight needs a loyal crew. And the first of our glamorous trolley dollies making his debut report for Flaps is Andrew Easton, who looks particularly hot in his uniform. He had the tough job of going to Heathrow to play with British Airways' brand new jets. BA is the first airline in Europe to operate both the Airbus A380 and the Boeing 787 Dreamliner, the first two of which landed at Heathrow at the beginning of July. So, first off, Andrew spoke to one of BA's training captains, who's called Rob, and asked him what it's like to see the A380 in his company colours. It's like the birth of a child for us almost, because it's been nine months in the waiting since we uh, did our courses to learn how to fly it. And uh, it's now here, and uh, we can start enjoying it. And and, and so, have you actually been flying the last little while or have you just been stuck in simulators waiting for this to come? Well we uh, did our courses onto the aeroplane back in September last year and uh, since since then we've um, did some flying with Qantas on their A380 so that we could gain some experience flying the aeroplane. We finished that in January this year but until since then we've basically been in the simulator making sure we keep in practice and also been involved in training all our other pilots who are coming onto the aeroplane. There's a swarm of people pushing towards the uh, the front of the... Uh, is the front or the back of the hangar with the uh, big doors? I think it's the front of the it hangar, is. yeah, where, where the doors are. Double, du- double check. I mean, you, you, this must be so frustrating. This must be like a, a child who's, who's who's just about passed his driving test waiting to get in the oh, car for it the is. first time. It's like, it's like Christmas for us, really. You know, our presents have arrived and we're all waiting to open it up. So, uh, yeah, it is very, very exciting. Very exciting for the whole company because this really has been a whole company-wide initiative. So many different departments have been involved in the, the whole introduction. And for the first time, uniquely for us, we're actually introducing two new types 
which uh, at the same time, which is, uh, we haven't had a new aeroplane for 20 years and then we get two come together. Yeah, they're, like, <laughs> they're like buses or, or planes. It yeah, is, yeah. Uh, tell me the greatest thing about coming to work and sitting in that cockpit every day. Oh, I think, I think you know, it, it is like being given the best sort of uh, boys toy in the world, really, and, and being a, the, allowed to go and take it away and uh, and use it you know i think uh, obviously it's more serious than that but at that fundamental level it is like having the best gadget in the world to play with sadly uh, sadly unlike your first car you can't just nip in this afternoon and take it for a quick no, spin no no i've not been given the keys by my boss <laughs> he's keeping hold of them <laughs> great to meet you thank you so much nice meeting you Andrew. thank you He's one very happy pilot. Then Andrew caught up with Sir Roger Bone, the president of Boeing UK, and Randy Tinseth, one of their US marketing chiefs. Randy began by explaining what the upsides to the Dreamliner are. I think it changes aviation in three ways for the airline. First, it allows them to open up new markets profitably, so new destinations, new nonstop service. Second, it's a new benchmark in terms of efficiency. It's about 20% more fuel efficient than aircraft flying today. And then finally, it's a new experience for passengers, not only the way it looks inside, but the way you feel that after a long flight. And it's all because of the 21st century technology in this new aircraft. We, we can't ignore the fact that that 21st century technology has caused a few issues for you. Uh, that has been quite a headache. It was the batteries in the rear, is that right? Yeah, we've had some challenges on the program. There's no question about that. We've now, though, just delivered our 68th 787 Dreamliner to 13 customers. So production's going well, the airplane's performing well in service, and we're very pleased with where we're at. You'd put that down to standard teething problems with any new piece of equipment? Well, there's always challenges with new airplanes. Uh, the reliability of the airplane is right where the 777 was at this stage in its development. But, hey, it's not good enough. We're going to make it better, and our, we're committed to making the reliability of the airplane world-class in every way. Now, Sir Roger, when we think of Boeing, perhaps we think of the large manufacturing base in Seattle, the headquarters in Chicago, we may forget that actually the UK contributes a huge amount to the making of this aircraft and your other aircraft. Yes, it does. We've always been very heavily dependent on the, the UK's supply manufacturing base. That continues to be the case. Uh, with a 787, when it flies with Rolls-Royce engines, then 25% of that aeroplane in value terms is made by UK companies. So that's a very significant contribution. Millions? Uh, tens of millions? Billions to the UK economy? Oh, absolutely. We certainly are. I mean, you just, just do, the, do, the, do the sums. The ticket price for a 787 is around the $200 million mark. Uh, I just quoted you the figure of 25% of the value uh, being made by UK companies when it flows with Rolls-Royce engines. You, you do the maths. I mean, the contribution to the UK economy is calculated in a lifetime over billions of dollars. We see the, the revolutionary design with the 787, the way it's made. You talk about how efficient it is, how spacious it also feels, the experience for passengers. Uh, you have to wonder just how far further you can go with making the flying experience a more efficient and, 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 and pleasant thing. Well, I think that the 787 is that next logical step in terms of efficiency. Actually, a few weeks ago, we expanded our 787 line with the 787-10, which will be the most efficient airplane flying. And then as we look to the future, we're looking at new versions of the 777 that, again, will focus on efficiency and a great passenger experience. And what about you guys as, as people? Are you aviation buffs? Do you come here standing at uh, the world's greatest airport looking around thinking, oh, wow, isn't this great? Or do you get used to all this? Yeah, no, I certainly do. Every time I come and see an airplane like this, you get a tremendous buzz of excitement. This is, this is innovation. This is high tech. This is the future. This is absolutely fantastic. Do you, ever get, do you remember your first flight, Randy? Oh, I absolutely do. I was going to college. 
in 1977. <laughs> and I'll tell you what, I went across the country. It was, I think, five different stops. It took all day and all night. And now I fly about 250,000 miles a year. And I tell you what, in the 32, 33 years I've worked at Boeing, I just love absolutely every minute of it. Andrew Easton there, finding out about the A380 and the brand new Dreamliner. What are you doing, Elliot? Well, sorry, you said Dreamliner, and I thought, well, I'd better get the fire extinguisher out, you know, just in case. Oh, stop it. Have you made the tea yet? Flaps Podcast. It's like going around with carb heat hot. Now, from Heathrow to Goodwood. Ultimate High, based at Goodwood, is one of Europe's leading flight safety and aerobatics training schools. They were founded in 2002 by former RAF pilot Mark Greenfield. So our second glamorous trolley dolly of this podcast is Mike Roberts, and he caught up with Greeners. Greeners? Yeah, that's what they call him. He caught up with Greeners next to a very windy runway and began by asking him what Ultimate High does. It's a good question. Um, I'd love to start with Ultimate High. It's not just a clever name. Um, what we do is, is really three different sets of things. Um, we give experienced flights to non-pilots, give them the opportunity to fly very high-performance airplanes, including this airplane here, the Exeter 300, which is the world's top um, two-seat uh, certified uh, display aircraft. And we we basically teach people how to fly. Now, um, you might think, gosh, it takes a lot to fly an airplane. The bottom line, frankly, is that piloting isn't terribly difficult and pilots aren't terribly clever, capable people. If you can drive a car, you can fly an airplane. Um, I'm now shattering the illusions of all those people who've got private pilot's license who have been gods to their families and friends up to now. Um, but it's uh, it's incredible what you can get done on your first flight. So one of our profiles, the Top Gun profile, where people live out their Tom Cruise fantasies, some of them anyway. Um, we teach them, uh, we do a formation takeoff, we split to get them to fly the airplane, left, right, up, down. Uh, we start introducing them to G, we do some gentle aerobatics, they do some aerobatics, and then we bring them together um, to show them how to fly a simulated uh, dogfight. They chase each other around the sky, trying to bring their simulated guns to bear from the right place. They press the trigger, a obligatory scream of yee-haw, jest is dead. Uh, smoke comes out of the bad guy and it's home in time for team medals. Um, and if you just had a camera on the second airplane chasing it round, you'd actually see somebody who's never flown before fly a pretty intricate sequence of wing-overs and barrel rolls and loops. Uh, so you can do an awful lot on your first trip. And so the sense of achievement is pretty huge. You know, if you go on a track and drive a car, we can all drive cars. It's fun driving cars around track, don't get me wrong. I love track days. Um, but for this, people go, oh, I've never flown before, come out of it feeling 10 foot tall. So it's a huge amount of fun. Uh, flying, so, yeah, flying anything is fun. Uh, I'm teaching my son to fly at the moment, he's 15. The promise was, you know, do well in GCSEs, sorry, work hard at GCSEs, because August 22nd is when the results come out. Um, and uh, we'll start your flying training. And okay, so it's basic flying. I'm teaching straight and level one and how to climb and how to descend and I'm enjoying it and he's enjoying it you know so flying it flying is great it's it's, it's a great um, uh, it's a great feeling and uh, it's not necessary for everybody uh, interesting fact though a lot of pilots are afraid of heights so people say oh, I don't want to fly because I'm afraid of heights I'm te- terrified of heights really like a lot of pilots I think it's a control thing but you don't feel that in an airplane talking about your son learning to fly what do you think the benefits are of doing aerobatics to a a standard PPL holder? It's a very good question. Um, I think that uh, most private pilots learn to fly um, in what we call the middle of the flight envelope. The airplanes can do lots of things and uh, it's not saying that um, our pilots are better 
than people who teach private pilot's licenses or PPL, which is different. We have a different range of experience. Um, because I ran the Empire Test Pilot School for a couple of years as well, I think I personally have a very strong view that pilots should be comfortable all the way around the edge of the flight performance envelope. Do you have to fly aerobatics to be a decent pilot? Absolutely not. Uh, and some people don't actually enjoy flying aerobatics the same way some people don't enjoy being on roller coasters or fairground rides. But having been to the edge of the performance envelope and see what happens there and find out actually that that way don't be dragons and that it is actually flyable uh, both inside and beyond the flight performance envelope is actually very reassuring so things like stalling and spinning those are things that aerobatic pilots look at which interestingly people who come and do private pilots licenses with us also look at because we're very demanding what would somebody pay for a uh, an ultimate high aerobatic experience well do you know what in terms of smiles per pound it's the best value for money you could possibly come across they are expensive airplanes to run if you go out and buy a brand new extra 300 it's a quarter of a million pounds um, so it's going to be expensive I think that we charge we start off um, if you want to fly aerobatics and I fly with the fighter pilot starts off at 199 um, uh, and like a lot of other places we make a big uh, a big effort to ensure that people enjoy their time on the ground as well you know it's not just sausages through a machine there's a flying brief beforehand people arrive they get put into their green flying suits they choose their top gun name badges it's a it's really funny thing how people immediately start walking around in slow motion you know so the green flying suit goes on they add about it adds about seven or eight inches to your height and your stature your chest gets bigger your stomach gets smaller all other things react appropriately and uh, it's it's really funny to see how people react and because all of our guys um, are ex-military guys um, without it being an Andy Williams pull up a chair let me talk about me kind of thing it's uh, it tends to be that people are really interested to find out what we've done so we've got people ranging from Sea uh, Harrier pilots who got killed in the Falklands War, so I'd say Falklands War heroes. We've got people who served in Iran, uh, sorry, Iraq, um, Bosnia. Uh, we've got people who've done humanitarian relief, we've got people who've done search and rescue, we've got test pilots, we've got a bunch of ex Red Arrows guys. Yeah, so we've got a lot of very experienced pilots here, all of whom, without wanting to show off about what they've done, are very happy to chat and, and share their experiences, which, which is actually kind of interesting. You know, it, it, so it's not just the flying itself, it's the bit beforehand and the bit afterwards. Once we've flown, we sit down with the guys, we do a fairly detailed debrief. Some of the aerobatics, for some people, tend to be a bit of a blur, and so it's quite, it's quite useful to sit down and actually chat around what we've actually done and have a recap of the chap, uh, of, of the flight. So when you're in the extra 300, do you actually film people doing their experience? Yeah, if you look at the airplane, uh, we, um, we've got a very nice um, camera setup. We've got multiple camera positions on the airplanes. So what we do is there's a tail camera uh, on the top of the tail, which looks forward. So that's the main picture usually. And that gives you the airplane at the bottom of the picture um, and shows everything the airplane does. And inside the cockpit, we've got cameras which actually zoom in on you. So on the stuff that we give clients, there's a picture in picture uh, so you have the main picture of the airplane, what the airplane's doing, and then you have the guy smiling, laughing, enjoying himself all the way through. Sometimes you have to warn people, just bear in mind this is being recorded, so you determine the language level, and uh, sometimes people completely forget about that and say things that they really wouldn't want to record. I'm not going to say anyone on that, but I had a very conservative, uh, what I thought was a very conservative 
deputy editor, editor of a very nice country magazine who frankly had the biggest potty mouth of anybody I've ever flown with. I really didn't expect it from her, but there you go. That was, and some lovely invitations as well. But uh, yeah, it's uh, it's all good. And it makes it a great souvenir for the great flight. Great souvenir, actually. Well, it's been great meeting you, uh, Mark. And uh, the most important question of all is who plays the woman in the Top Gun experience? <laughs> well, frankly, as someone who doesn't particularly like Kelly McGillis, I think well, I'm very happy to pass over that completely. <laughs> it's Mason's Minute. Someone asked me recently, what's it like to write a letter to a loved one before going to war? Well, the first thing is I'm not terribly good at writing letters anyway. I suppose emails and stuff have got to me, and I don't mind sending those. No idea how to Twitter or tweet or twink or twunk or whatever it is. But writing a letter to a loved one before going to war is a singular experience, which I've done once, and... Fortunately, I'm old enough, definitely ugly enough and fat enough never to have to write again. Um, but it's one of those stressful situations, post-traumatic stressful situations I think of now, because the actual writing of the letter was probably something that I could recall the actual words 20-odd years after putting that letter into its blue envelope and leaving it hoping that it would never actually be read by anyone other than myself, and that is the case. But there I was in the days leading up to the 17th of January, 1991, the preamble to the Gulf War, and we were asked some really rather delicate questions, questions that only we knew the answers to, so that if we were captured and interrogated, we could get a coded message of some sort back to the Allies, to let them know that it was actually us delivering the information. And, of course, there was the request to write a letter to nearest and dearest, in my case, my wife, and, of course, my children. Um, the contents were and still are very personal. And in my case, it just happened to be a bit of an outpouring, really. I started um, by writing Dearest Wife, Dearest Kids, um, when you receive this letter, I shan't be around to uh, acknowledge any replies or something along those lines. And then there's the love, the calmness, the... Oh, gosh, what's the word? You go into battle totally confident that you're going to survive and do damage to your enemies with minimal damage to yourself. But here you are writing a letter that says, well, didn't quite make it. Um, now it's all up to you. And in many ways, it's a revelation now I think about it. You reveal things about yourself that you probably weren't too aware of when you started putting pen to paper. I wrote a page and a half asking my son to grow up proud of himself and his father and my daughter to do much the same. And... Um, Totally luckily, I've been around to see them do it. I'm terribly glad about that. But um, it's not an experience I would like to repeat. Not necessarily one I'd recommend, because you're putting yourself in harm's way. But a letter to a loved one from a military pilot probably takes a very regular content. I've never read anyone else's letter. I never want to. No one's ever read mine, and I never want them to. The moment the Gulf War finished and I realised I was safe 
It was incinerated into a million pieces of ash. Thanks, Pablo. That's probably about a minute. That's never a minute. Well, that's a bit different. Thanks, Pablo. And since we recorded that, Pablo has indeed learnt to use Twitter. Oh, hang on, I'm logged in. I'll, go, I'll have a little look. Hang on, Pablo Mason. Okay. I don't think you want to know. No, no. Hang on. There's a man with his shirt off here. That's not Pablo. That's never Pablo Mason. No, there's more than one Pablo Mason on Twitter, <laughs> and that's not our Pablo. He's got bigger boobs than my mum. Scroll down to that one, Giordano. Can you see that one? <laughs> Watch my hottest trailers of my best videos and movies online. Hello, Giordano. What are you doing there? Okay, let's have a little look at you. Oh, yes, I can actually see it all there. Yes, it's all going on. Uh, put that away. So Pablo Mason's got some funny friends. Don't search Twitter for Pablo Mason. Make Mace. sure you get the right Pablo Mason. He's at Pablo the, the pilot. pilot. Yes. And look at some of his friends here as well. There's a chap called Homeless who likes flowers and someone called Dick. <laughs> don't don't and Pablo's that. retweeted that. You can see his joystick and everything. Again, that's not our Pablo Mason. So be very careful. Just don't look for Pablo Mason. You have to put in it's what is he at, at pablo, pablo the, the pilot. pilot that's yes. his address yes at pablo the pilot thanks pablo yes and there's more from pablo mason next month does there have to be <laughs> so from goodwood to gloucester gloucester blimey we've gone from heathrow goodwood and now gloucester yes it's like the flaps qualifying cross country edition yeah it is and we haven't got lost once no we're never lost elliot we're just uncertain, uncertain of, of position, position. yeah yes, of course uh, anyway for this month's flaps fly-in mark visited gloucestershire airport it's the airport of course with gchq at the end of one of its runways so it's handy for flying and spying have they got a cafe of course they have it's a very good one so flying spying and frying. Right, enough already, OK. I spoke to the airport's operations director, Darren Lewington, who started with a proud boast. It's the busiest general aviation airport in the UK by some considerable margin. We handled 75,000 flights last year, and it's generally in the 75 to 90,000 ballpark. The bulk of that is single-engine piston work, uh, but there's everything here, 180 resident aeroplanes, everything from flexwing microlights to a Global Express corporate jet. So you're the busiest, which also implies you've got quite a good base of aircraft. How many flying clubs and uh, what are they? We've got five fixed-wing flying schools, uh, doing everything from uh, microlight, LAPL in future, right the way through to full commercial instrument rating training. They're also for uh, rotary uh, training schools doing PPL and again commercial work and a number of commercial helicopter operators as well as some charter carriers and uh, a lot of corporate jet operators. And as well as that it's uh, a passenger airfield as well, you get commercial flights in and out with passengers and presumably freight too. That's right, a company called Citywing operates uh, up to three times a day to the Isle of Man and in the summer months down to Jersey with a 19-seat LEP 410 aircraft. It's been hugely successful, been operating for almost five years now and carried more than 100,000 passengers. But the great thing about uh, people like yourself, people in aviation, is very often they, as they say, uh, eat their own dog food. You actually fly, don't you? You fly from here. Uh, I do indeed, yes. I've had my PPL for oh, 17 years now and with a night rating and IMC and 
tailwheel and all sorts of other bits and pieces but I've only managed a pitiful 250 hours or so in that period but uh, nevertheless I still get a grin even taxiing out to do some circuits. As we all do and don't say pitiful you're a very busy man Darren I'm sure. Uh, yes. Uh, you have been busy in the past in the past couple of weeks with uh, an aircraft uh, down with its uh, parachute deployed not far from here. Yes a Cirrus SR22 deployed its uh, its ballistic recovery system and uh, landed in a back garden in Cheltenham about uh, two miles southeast of the airfield. A fairly straightforward incident. The pilot walked away with uh, no injuries. There was no uh, no injury to anybody on the ground, but it's been a media circus ever since. The encouraging thing is it's actually been a really positive story. Not many people have seen the parachute recovery system before, so that's the novelty value and people want to know about it. And we've been able to explain that actually this is a really safe form of transport and Cirrus and the modern aircraft that are coming on stream are fitted with these super duper safety features. Now also here at the airfield you've got, uh, you've got the museum, the Jet Age Museum. Tell me about that. Well there's a huge amount of aviation history and heritage in this part of the world with uh, Messier Doughty and Rotor and all the companies that were here on the airfield and still are but uh, perhaps the best known is the Gloucester Aircraft Company and the uh, Jet Age Museum was founded more than 20 years ago to uh, preserve and commemorate Gloucester's rich aviation heritage and they've just completed, just in the final stages now of completing a purpose-built building here on the site to house their collection. Because, as you say, there is such a, an, an incredible uh, British aviation heritage and much of it around this part of the, part of the world. Well, the first Allied jet flight in the Gloucester E-28-39 took place a few miles away from here at Brockworth on the 8th of April 1941 at the hands of Jerry Sayer, the test pilot. It made a few short flights, a few feet in the air during taxiing trials. And although the first official flight was recorded up at Cranmer when it flew away from the airfield, it had the, uh, had the wind beneath its wheels here in Gloucestershire, and that's something that we're hugely proud of. In terms of GA and, and the future for it in this part of the world, is, is it a growing industry or is it in, in any kind of decline? Some elements are growing, some are static and some are certainly in decline. Our movements last year in 2012 were up nearly 10% uh, on the previous year and that coincides with the highest fuel prices we've ever had to charge which is encouraging in many ways. The fact that people are still coming into the industry, all of the schools are reporting a steady trickle of new people through the door, it could be much busier, and we're certainly seeing growth in particular sectors. The microlighting and LAA permit and light sport aircraft is growing strongly. That's why we've started supplying UL91 for the, for the, for the Rotax engine uh, users. There has been some decline in the, in the twin market, but then that's been replaced by things like Cirrus, and uh, we have a Cirrus service centre here with RGV Aviation who are, uh, are exceptionally busy. Now, if anybody listening wants to come in and, uh, and visit the airfield or visit the museum, what, what are the arrangements for, uh, for GA pilots flying into uh, Gloucestershire here? Well, there's no requirement for PPR. Have a good look at our AIP entry before you come or the, uh, or the commercially available flight guides. We are a busy airfield. We've still got the three runway wartime configuration, which does confuse some. If you'd like a direct join on your uh, first call, please ask for it on that call. Otherwise, we'll put you into the overhead with the, uh, with the other aircraft. But uh, you'll be uh, assured of a warm welcome. Fuel, is it, uh, has it uh, priced here? Is it uh, reasonable? Because our throughput is so high, we're probably the UK's biggest uh, Avgas uh, user at the moment, uh, around about half a million litres a year. And that does give us a little bit of buying power. Consequently, we try and pass that on and keep our fuel prices as, as low as absolutely possible. 
And of course, finally, the one thing that everybody wants to know about, the cafe, as uh, us on Flaps certainly would. If Elliot was here, he'd be in there now, probably munching on a burger. I've been on a health kick, so I just had the gammon today. I hope that's not too unhealthy. Uh, it's very tasty. Uh, what's the cafe like? Uh, how's it regarded? Is it, uh, is it a popular destination? It's hugely popular, not just by the flying fraternity, but by, by members of the public who'd love to come and watch the aircraft coming and going. Well, that's, that's, that's the great thing, isn't it? I, I fly out of airfields where the public come to eat and they come to watch the aircraft. Well, they're the pilots of the future, and it only takes you know every one or two of those to stick their head around the door and perhaps have a trial lesson or a flight to the Isle of Man. That's good business for me. So we very much consider it a shop window on the activities that go on on the airfield. Flaps podcast. Communicate. 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 Now, if you've flown recently, particularly in the southeast of England, you'll know how busy airspace can be. What GA pilots call flipping busy, the CAA calls a scarce resource. The main reason is that the basic structure of the UK's airspace was developed over 40 years ago, and since then there's been a dramatic upturn in aviation. Throughout Europe, there's a move to simplify and harmonise the way that airspace and air traffic control is used, through what's called the Single European Sky Project. So, in mid-July, the CAA held a conference for GA, looking at the Future Airspace Strategy, or FAS for short. The idea was to talk about airspace changes with users of class G airspace. Speakers included representatives from the CAA, the GA Alliance and the military. And Flaps went along to find out more. First off, Phil Roberts, the CAA's head of airspace, ATMs and aerodromes, explained what FAS is all about. So the future airspace strategy is an opportunity for us to redesign our airspace to meet the needs of the uh, airspace user community in the, in the current period. The airspace has evolved over time, uh, over the last 40, 50 years. It's been done in a way that's been uh, rather piecemeal. And actually what we'd like to do is to take a much more strategic approach as to how we uh, manage and run the UK airspace. Aircraft capability has changed in that time. Our ATC capability has changed in that time. And as a consequence, what we've got today um, has evolved in the best interest of trying to make progress. But it isn't where we'd start today, no. Now, the concerns, of course, that many uh, GA and, and private pilots would have is that it may have evolved piecemeal and we've got what we've got today, but it kind of works. Change is always a threat. So what do you say to those who are concerned about what is being proposed? Don't be concerned. This is an opportunity. Uh, it always is. There is a chance to do things differently. Um, we are absolutely committed to trying to find new ways of doing business. And that includes potentially designing in access to airspace uh, as part of changes rather than trying to do it as an afterthought uh, afterwards. So I would say this is a real opportunity to make a difference, capitalise on technology where we can and what we'd really like to know is uh, their views on you know, what they would like to see as part of this process and now's the right time to engage. Does GA actually matter to the CAA? Actually we have a, a duty to take into account the needs of all airspace users so that's set out and statute. So engaging in this, what we're describing as the sort of fourth pillar of uh, the FAS work, is actually about making sure that we are taking into account the needs of those users. Unsurprisingly, each type of Class G airspace user has different requirements from it. Addressing the conference, the CAA's Chief Executive Andrew Haynes also spelled out the problem. The basic structure of airspace was developed, what, something over 40 years ago now? You know, even some of our Cessnas and uh, Pipers at our training schools are newer than our airspace, which is saying something. And over 40-odd years, there have been huge changes in other aspects of our industry, including a hundred-fold increase in demand for aviation. 
We've been placing sticking plasters over airspace for too long, and that of itself has caused congestion and hotspots and pinch points and restrictions in themselves. That's why we hear very often from sports and recreational pilots that airspace structure is too complicated and indeed excludes them from large areas, which then ends up with them flying longer routes or not flying at all, whilst commercial operators worry about the safety risks of having to leave controlled airspace and fly through Class G to reach some really quite sizable airports in many cases. This is the chance to address those and many other issues. Sir John Allison of the GA Alliance is a member of the Future Airspace Oversight Group. He spoke up for GA and private pilots. The GA sector comprises some 96% of all UK civil aircraft. There are over 28,000 private pilots. In all its aspects, GA contributes some 1.4 billion to the economy and provides a lot of employment. Now that's small potatoes compared with commercial aviation, I realise, but it's still sufficiently big to deserve consideration. One sector should not be sacrificed on the altar of another. Another fact that's worth repeating is that the label GA, which owes its definition to ICAO, is highly unsatisfactory because it lumps together an impossibly wide range of disparate activities, as Andrew told us, ranging from biz jets that operate more or less like commercial airliners to hang gliders. Such diverse interests do not necessarily have common cause so far as airspace requirements are concerned. A huge number, probably the majority, of recreational users don't want to fly in a straight line from A to B, and that's the whole point. Flighting Class G is elective, and if others find the level of safety to be below their requirements, they don't have to fly there. They can choose to fly within controlled airspace. We, on the other hand, have nowhere else to go. I am worried by references to GA safari parks, quote-unquote. And finally, Air Vice Marshal Stuart Ather. He explained the way that military flying will change in the next 18 months or so in the UK. We've been fixed and focused on Afghanistan for quite a long time. It's been made quite clear that come the 31st of December next year, we're coming back. What that means is, on average, there's going to be an increase of about 1,000 hours of flying activity per week that's going to be done in the UK that at the moment has been done in Afghanistan. Much of the operational activity will become training activity as we prepare for the next operation. In terms of the actual type of flying we're going to be doing, this is an evolving picture. On average, the typhoon flies less than 5% of its time below 2,000 feet. However, there are many other military users who will continue to require to use a low-level system. Similarly to the RAF coming back from Afghanistan, so does the Army. And the Army exercise programme in the UK will see significant increase. And as a consequence, you'll see increased helicopter activity, whether that's with the Royal Air Force doing support helicopters or in terms of joint fires and the use of Apache. We caught up with some of the conference attendees. First of all, Air Vice Marshal Stuart Ather again, who began by explaining in more detail the military's airspace needs. Well, the first thing is about protecting the integrity of the UK airspace and how that strategy will play into that. Secondly, I use the airspace in the UK to prepare my forces for operations wherever they're required around the world. 
So that flexible and efficient use of airspace is the common requirement of all users. What I don't want is large volumes of segregated airspace. The Royal Air Force is reducing in size, our platforms are becoming more specialised but also more potent. So I need larger volumes of air. So therefore that old model of standing permanent airspace no longer applies in a country the size of the United Kingdom. So I want to work with the other stakeholders, whether it be from the industry or from the general aviation community and look at how we can construct the airspace such that we can flexibly and even dynamically use that airspace to meet all our requirements. Nick Wall, Group Editor of Pilot Magazine. I think they need to do a lot of thinking about it in terms of general aviation and some of the things that we've heard today so far. Essentially what's going on here is there's a debate between commercial interests and between uh, private recreational interests. What we have to be careful is that commercial interests don't impinge too much on recreational interests because otherwise you're starting to affect the whole quality of life of the country and saying, well, actually, commercial interests matter the most and that would be absolutely wrong. So there's an awful lot of work that's got to be done here. Finally, we spoke to John Brady, Vice Chair of the Light Aircraft Association, and we asked him what he'd like to see happen to Class G airspace. The LIA looks after quite a number of light aeroplanes and we're really interested in making sure that we've got some airspace to fly in. Now, we came to the Future Airspace Strategy meeting here last November when we talked about the aims of that part of the project, which was to improve the way airliners move around the airliner network. Over time, airspace, controlled airspace has really increased in volume, so there's not that much uncontrolled airspace left. So we want to see our ability to use this airspace when we need to, use it efficiently, not be blocked from airspace which is not being used for other purpose. So we're really looking at access to the airspace, the Class G airspace, which is available to us. Now you've got 8,000 or so members in the LAA. I mean, I assume you all speak as one voice. What do you want to achieve with, uh, with, uh, with this conference and for the future airspace strategy? An understanding of what it is we can do to improve the lot of light aircraft and sport aviation in Class G airspace, just as we've done for commercial operations in controlled airspace. So we get a balance across the future airspace strategy and indeed we meet the requirements that the CAA have to balance the needs of all airspace users. Speaking as, as a private pilot, what would, what would be a win for you? There's quite a lot of airspace which is not available to us, um, which is not being used for other purposes, for example, at weekends. Um, similarly, there are big chunks of controlled airspace where airliners use just a small part of it, um, and we would like to, find, to see access to that airspace so we can maximise what there is left for us to use. John Brady of the LAA. So as you can tell, it's an ongoing discussion and one in which GA pilots are encouraged to partake. And you can find out more on the future airspace strategy by going to caa.co.uk and searching for FAS. Flaps podcast. So that's it for Flaps for this month. We're really sorry about the wait. We'll see you in September. Yeah, September 2015. Oh, don't be so stupid. You're right, that's far too optimistic. September 2016? Yeah, that's much more like it. As ever, if you like Flaps, tell your friends. If you don't like it, tell us and we'll see what we can do. We're on email at mail at flapspodcast.com. On Twitter, we're at Flaps Podcast. You can find us on Facebook, or there's always the website, flapspodcast.com. Thanks for listening, and it sounds like finally that cup of tea's ready. We're ready for departure. See you next month. Thanks for listening to Flaps.
Return of the flaps. Return ooh, what? What? <laughs> <laughs> you didn't do your ooh oohs. Okay, I'll. Return of the flaps. Ooh, return, return of, of the, the flaps. flaps. Right, that's no, that's that's a bad idea. Right, that's it. I think that's a wrap. That's good. That'll do. That's it for another six months. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>